approaching an election year. Got to be with us next year. And um, I say that because of the volatility and the polarization that we have in our culture around that. But when we elect a president, um, once we elect them, we then try to decide uh, whether or not we like their policies and rule of law. Uh, meaning this, we ask the question, does this president or slash king, if you want to use that, the, his policies and laws, do they help us flourish? Now, in a democratic society, we have the freedom to ask that question. Do, does uh, what this king has instituted and uh, have in run, does it help me flourish? And uh, isn't that really down deep um, what we all really long for? I want to flourish. I would like to flourish. And, um, and my guess is if you're like me, even as a Christian, you wonder, I don't know if I'm flourishing. I don't know I want to flourish. That really is all of us. We were made to flourish. We lost that flourishing. And now we, but we still long to flourish with God and, um, and to long to flourish in this world. And it's a very difficult thing to do. Huh? If I had to answer that question to you right now, am I flourishing? Huh? I've struggled recently. The Christian life, it is hard to flourish in the Christian life. Well, as we come to the Sermon on the Mount, there is a king who is not elected but it truly is already king. And this king, uh, this Sermon on the Mount, the longest teaching words that we have of him, sequentially that we have of Jesus, is while he was here on earth. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Uh, actually, we only have recorded 50 minutes worth of normal speaking speed words of Jesus. Isn't that crazy? That ought to tell you those words are very, very important if this Holy Spirit has chosen for us in the Scriptures to have those. And we ought to hang on them. And here we have his largest uh, uh, speaking time, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, that we're going to be looking at throughout the summer. And uh, it is Jesus' kind of manifesto, or if you will, constitutional document for the individual follower of Christ. This is what the king says, how you shall flourish, and what it means to flourish, and what flourishing looks like for those who are a member of this kingdom, or this country, if you will. This is what... Flourishing looks like, and um, and what it what it is. It is, um, uh, and I want you to see the uh, the authority of the king uh, as we look at the intro here, and uh, before I pray. But if you look at verses one and two of our passage, I want you to look here, and these are two verse verses as we come into the Sermon on the Mount that can be just kind of overlooked, and you think, well, these aren't very important, but these are rich and establishing, and I want you to hear the authority that is coming forth. Even in this phase, establishing, there is a king, here he is, and he's speaking. Now look, as you see in verses 1 and 2, notice that all the language that he was seeing, that he went up, he moved from one place to another geographically. He sat down, his disciples came to him, people were moving. He opened his mouth, he's speaking. Do you see that recollection of the eyewitness account, remembering what happened? So the first thing to know about the Sermon on the Mount, that there really was Jesus, he really is king, and he was moving among the world. This isn't just some made-up thing. When the scriptures record with us for us where they move in the cities, it's validating for us history that this really happened. So see that, and he's really a person who's speaking that. But then also notice this, just to 
to do this is that the high places is where God in throughout the scriptures, on mountains, if you were just trace the mountains throughout the story of God's people where God always establishes his authority and his reign. Remember Mount Sinai, right? Where Moses went on a mount. Actually, where the Mount Olivet, the discourse, I mean, so many pictures of the mountain is that. It's interesting, by the way, to study what Jesus taught beside the sea and what he taught from the mountaintops. But the mountain has always been a place and a view of authority. This is God speaking. So the scriptures are letting us know that Jesus is moving to a place of authority to speak to you and me through the Sermon on the Mount. There's a king. He's a good king. And he longs for you to flourish. And he's going to speak there. As a matter of fact, the parallel um, to him being Moses, the better Moses here, right? Remember, this, even his story, the first four chapters are telling us the story of Jesus, really a savior and who he is. But so many similar things happen, Right? Remember Moses, he was born uh, among a king, a pharaoh, who was killing babies. When was Jesus born? We learned that of his story, right? He was born when Herod was murdering babies. We know that uh, Jesus went out into a desert. Where did Moses go? He was in a desert with God's people. And you begin to walk along, and one of the things that's happening here as well is that the place that the law came from through Moses, now the final authority of the law, the perfect, fullest understanding of what the law is and all is, the better Moses is moving to the mountain. And he's the one who made his face to shine when Moses came down. He's the one moving to this mountain. And he's going to sit down. Notice it tells us he sit down. So isn't that just like God? To be king and yet fatherly and near. How beautiful is that? With his authority and yet his kindness, with his intimacy, he moves to a place to let us know. So hear that. That's what you should be concluding. I'm seeing from the Sermon on the Mount that here God in a place of authority, reminded that the better Moses, the place God is about to reveal himself to him and for his people in a way um, that is life-changing. Life-changing for you to flourish. Now, it's the most famous part probably of the scriptures throughout and so much study. It's overwhelming, honestly, to study. I actually enjoyed Ecclesiastes because there wasn't quite as much information out there. There's so much information out there to study on the Sermon on the Mount. But God wants his people to flourish. There's a couple of things I want you to understand. Uh, there were, there were some, there's some wrong ways to interpret the Sermon on the Mount, some bad ways over history. And one, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, would to view it as if this is uh, what you have to do in order to be a part of God's kingdom. Like, you have to do this and do these things, and that's the way you enter into be a kingdom follower of Christ. That the only way you end is by what you do, is how you become a part of the kingdom. Many have wrongly interpreted that in that way. The other is, some throughout history, uh, even in the Reformed circles, have thought that the, that the standard of perfection, when you look at all the things, I'm not going to give you an overview, but when it says to... to um, uh, uh, to the perfection and the standards that it gives throughout the teachings are so high that no one can attain it that it was meant to just show you that you're a sinner and you need Jesus. There was only that. And so what, what I wanna, want you to think of is it really it's a, it's a combination of a lot of things, but it for sure is this and what we will look at today, is that um, the Sermon on the Mount is, uh, is about 
uh, it explains to us how you enter into God's kingdom. It does do that. But then it also, there's a virtuous nature to it, that this is what God's people look like and what they ought to aspire for. And then there's sort of an a, a eschaton or a, an end time, a hopefulness of the future, that actually this one day will perfectly be true. And that we will be with God and we will love and walk perfectly. There's a hopefulness now. There is so much wisdom in Matthew. And um, the other thing to know contextually is that the two groups of people that are hearing this are either Jews who have been living post the temples being destroyed, or, but, but the Jews of God's people who hear it, and they are mindful of the future and the future coming, the Messiah. But then also there's Greeks who have come in to this as well. And they have a huge value for virtue. Virtue was the highest value of the Greco-Roman world. And so Aristotleism, hedonism, all these things, they said in the end to be the character of the person, if you could create virtue and aspire to that, that's it. And so it's unbelievably, I wish I could, there's no need, we won't do it in the sermons yet, but it's unbelievably beautiful how the words, and we'll say even the word blessed, is a word that, that the Jews are going to be unbelievably hurt, hear it in a way that's going to bring them to the same place, and the Greeks are going to hear the word blessed, and it's going to bring them towards the one who is sitting down giving his authority. It's important to remember those things. So this morning, we're in the Beatitudes, and what most say about the Beatitudes are better, I, I like to say it this way, uh, they're a little bit separate, they're a little, they look like Proverbs, they're a little, they seem kind of formula, formulaic, but they're, they're not, um, I want you to know that, they're not formulaic, if you do this, this is only what will happen to you, it's not that, but they're, um, 1 through 12, uh, or 13, the, the Beatitudes, there's nine, some think eight, that's okay, it doesn't matter. Um, they're sort of the elevator speech of the whole sermon. Like if you were riding in an elevator and you're like, hey, you got to sell this in a moment. You ever heard that? Salesmen need to be able to be able to tell their whole thing and who they are and what they're about in one kind of ride to the elevator. If you only have that one opportunity to sell, this is sort of the elevator speech. In some sense, it's a summary, it's also the grounding, it's really the lens that everything that will be taught uh, about giving, about sexuality, about oaths, about how to live and build your life. I mean, all those things will come through this kind of summary of the Beatitudes that we have. And what, we're, what I'm choosing to do is not go through each of them so minutely and so focused, because honestly, they're a little hard to interpret uh, in and of themselves, by themselves. But all, it's really better to understand when you begin to see the totality of how they're intermingled with each other and what they say at a grander scale with a little bit of understanding of the small. So I'm just going to look at them this morning. We're going to look at the first four. And we're going to look at uh, these first four. Um, some believe that you can divide them up into three, 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 four, and four, all that. Um, but I think that a little bit of what's going on is, think about Moses. Remember the Old Testament, the first four are the laws of the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. The first four are in relation to God. And the last six are in relation to people. Beatitudes are sort of like that. The first four are in relation, what does it mean to entrance? How do you come into the kingdom of God? They're kind of entry level. And the other kind of what it means to be the, the second four about transformation and how you relate to people. So um, this morning we'll look at the four. Here's the outline. We'll look at um, entrance, uh, entrance into, do I have an outline? Is it coming? We'll give you three other three E's. Uh, entrance, how they are entrance into the kingdom of God. Uh, how they are um, at the essence of the kingdom of God, what it means to live it, and then also the embodiment. We'll see the embodiment of these things. So essence, I mean, entrance, essence, embodiment. 
pray. God, help us to see that um, well as we just briefly here look at your, um, as we look at the, uh, this wonderful, wonderful passage. And God, I'm, I'm, I'm so amazed. I continue to be amazed at your thoughtfulness. You are most wise, and you do know us better than we know ourselves, and you are king, and you are our father. But I'm also in awe of, of how thoughtful, and you know what we need and how it needs to be said to us. I'm thankful you've sustained your word, and we have your inerrant, infallible word here to look and to see what it means to be a part, to be in what the kingdom of God is like. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we'll start with entrance into the kingdom. And that these first four talk about kind of uh, entrance into the kingdom. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Again, uh, what I mean by the first four here, giving entrance. It's not that you, if you do these, you are entered into the kingdom. Meaning, think of it this way. This is what God graciously does to people he saves. This is what it looks like. If this hasn't happened to you, then you're not a kingdom living under the laws of the kingdom. You're not a part of the kingdom of God. So this is what he does and what he produces in those that he saves. And we'll begin here with the poor in spirit. And so the question then is, has he done this to you? Think about that. And has he, has he done this? But this is what he does. Notice in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, so the idea here is that you move. This is how someone who is in the kingdom of heaven, they are poor. Now notice uh, the poor there. You see the poor, but the key phrase in this particular one is not just poor, poverty sense, which a lot of people think. Because this means you'd be poverty or this is about uh, just you know, how much you have. It's not, notice the phrase is it's poor in spirit. The poverty it's speaking about here is poverty in spirit. Meaning your soul. Meaning inwardly what you see, the poverty of the spirit. And so when it says blessed are the poor in spirit, here's what it was. That word, that word poor is talking about bankruptcy. It's talking about spiritually being powerless. Entrance way into the kingdom of God to be under this king requires people to be poor in spirit, to realize this, that I am bankrupt spiritually and I can do nothing about it. I'm powerless. I can't change my senses. See, you have to become poor, meaning understand your powers in order to be in the kingdom. You don't get into it, and the kingdom's not yours by you getting it, that you actually realize that I am powerless. Everything that we, everything one commentary says, everything that we think we have done to earn, to be a part of the kingdom of God, we realize that disqualifies us. I'm not worthy to be in the king. I am, I am disqualified. I am bankrupt. There's no way for me in the spirit to move into the kingdom of God. How do we get there? It's by grace, the rest of the Bible tells us. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no man can boast. That's how they get there. Now, we're Calvinists at this church. I believe that. Bang, he said that word from the pulpit, all right? 
It's okay, you don't have to be one to be here. And I, I bring this up because I think it's important. Basically what a Calvinist believes is God-centered in his salvation. Our understanding is this, is did I save myself or did God save me? And we pray it out a little bit more as this, did I choose God or did God choose me? Was there something in me that saved myself or did God do it? Now, that's a... What we would say, the reason I personally became one is because of understanding the poorness of spirit. And I believe it's biblical in that way. But here's what I want you to hear. There was a buddy of mine. He's actually an elder now at Tate's Creek. And he had come to faith at the University of North Alabama when I was still in college ministry. Radical change in his life. I'll tell you his name, Casey Willis. He's an elder up at, up at Tate's Creek now. And he became a Christian and he, his life... <laughs> I mean, it is one of those, like, murder, you know, kind of crazy, and it comes a Christian. And, um, and people are coming to faith left and right with him. He would take me places and say, tell them what happened to me. And I didn't lead him to Christ. He came to Christ at a service at home over the summer before I met him. In numbers, I mean, we had 20-something of his fraternity brothers came to Christ in one, one, <laughs> one semester because he was like, you've got to know what's happened to me. And they were asking, what's happened to you, dude? You're really different. And they knew it. It was really, really obvious. Well, as he grew, he's sort of kind of getting around the church now, and he hears this debate, and then somebody says, they're Calvinists, they're not. And he's just like, what's all this stuff going on? He comes to me, he's like, Shane, what, are you, what does this mean? And he's sort of kind of getting worried and drawn up in the, the behind the scenes and what God does and the big theology of it. But it's thing, he's just panicked. What does this mean, all that stuff? And I just looked at him and said, Casey, how much do you think you have to do with your salvation? He started crying. Big tear came up. He said, I had nothing to do with it. I said, that's right, brother. You were lost, and now you've been found. That was his understanding of how he got in the kingdom of God. He was bankrupt, poor in spirit. So don't don't worry about all that stuff. You want, I mean, it's important behind the scenes and that stuff. Do you see that? That's the point. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You had less to do with it than you ever thought. And you were more sinful than you ever wanted to admit. And he was more gracious and more loving and more kind than you ever imagined. And you got here and you thought you got here, but you realized I had, it was him. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I, I didn't save myself. I didn't say I was found him. No, he found me. That's at the grassroots level. That's what Jesus, he's sitting in a field with all kinds of people here. Just hear that. Don't worry about the words and the taglines and all that send you sideways. You are bankrupt. And the kingdom of God is for people who are spiritually bankrupt. And they know it. Secondly, is the idea of mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. And the mourn here is just compounded on top of that. And part of it, all the commentators say this. It's not about death, okay? It's not talking about that. It's talking about mourning over your sin. So not only do you know that you're bankrupt, the next thing that you realize is the reason I'm bankrupt is because of sin. And you weep over that. I am a sinner. And when Casey was tearing up in his in, his, in front of me, I know what was going through his mind because he was a notorious sinner. And it, I know what he was thinking about. He was mourning 
over what he had done and been a part of. So those that are a part of God's kingdom not only know they're bankrupt, but they mourn and weep, don't they, brother? They do, just like you did when I saw God save you. They mourn over their sin. And then they're meek. And the meek here, meek's a weird word to try to figure out. Do y'all use it in your vocabulary much? I don't. <laughs> He's meek. You should. It's a great word. But the meekness here is really a, a posture of humility that not only, let me build it this way, not only am I poor in spirit, and not only do I mourn over the sin that makes me poor in spirit, but I realize I'm the sinner. It's me. It's like what G.K. Chesterton said when the London News back in the early 1900s, when they asked much theologians and popular writers in England, they asked, Who, what, is, what is the problem with the world today? You know what happened? G.K. Chesterton wrote in one, wrote in a letter, sent it in, and put one word, me. And the meek are not haughty. They're not like the Pharisees. The kingdom of God is for those who remember back to the garden, pre-Moses, that there's a God and I'm not him. And as a matter of fact, I'm opposite. I'm the sinner. There is sin, and I mourn over that, but I am the sinner, and I'm the problem. In the kingdom of God, God's people don't look out in the world and go, sinners, they're ruining our world, they're ruining our country, they're ruining our school systems. school systems. True Christians understand this. The problem with our school system is, the very, is me, because I sin, and I compound the problem everywhere I go, in my home and in my place and where I am and live. That's, the, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is trying to tell us. Entrance into this kingdom comes from poor in spirit, seeing your sin, mourning over that, and the other way the entrance comes, uh, and, and then seeing that you're the sinner, and then you hunger and thirst for righteousness. That there is a change. Notice the hunger. You don't, what do you thirst the hunger? Think of being if you're really hungry and, and famished and that, you, you don't, you're not being picky about what you can have. You have something that's so strong that you thirst for the righteousness. And really, there's all kinds of things. The righteousness here, there's all kinds of meanings. The righteousness is God himself, who is the righteous one. And I long to be right with him. But it's also a longing, most of the commentators say, for the very righteousness that Jesus is going to describe in the Sermon on the Mount you have been so changed by being poor in spirit, by being mourning of your sin and seeing that it's you, that you hunger for the very things that God hungers for, that you long for that to come to place. That's the hunger for this righteousness. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. That's what entrance into this kingdom looks like. So from here forward, when it's going to tell you to be generous and to, uh, and yet it'll say to be generous and promiscuous, if you will, with your money, and yet at the same time, it'll tell you to be sexually, to be controlled. It'll tell you how to pray and not pray, and not do it, in, and how to take oaths and let your yes be yes. I mean, it, when it tells you these things, it will be coming to you. You've got to remember the way we entered the kingdom is the way we live in it. And that is the point. 
So not only is the entrance, it's the essence of the kingdom. So what we learn here in the first four verses is that this is how it happened to me. This is what he does to people he brings into the kingdom. And in this very way he saved me, what he built in me, is the very way I live out. Now I sort of ascribe to them. It's not a passiveness. There's a participation in this. And yet it's not an earning of God's love. It is something that comes out in God's people. There is something that really brings this essence. The first four Beatitudes show the divine approval means that one has been humbled under God's mighty hand through the preaching of the kingdom so that one admits one's spiritual poverty, mourns over sin and the oppression of God's people, and rests in God's care in the face of oppression and the hungers for the very righteousness. And so that's what it means. And as we look, we will move out in essence. Micah 6.8 becomes really another verse that says that, right? Oh man, what is good? He just told you, oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? That's what he's saying. And we preserve it. So how in the world, can you imagine when it's going to be the very first, uh, the very first um, section after the Beatitudes is going to be salt and light? Can you imagine going out into the world to be salt and light? And God calling us, and we go out there arrogantly, and we go out there not meek, and we live for the shalom, which is the peace of our community, and yet we don't bear what God has brought into us. The world is fed up with people opposite of the Beatitudes. Right now, men are being disciplined in my own denomination for very living contrary to the very Beatitudes that we were brought into the kingdom by. Notorious people. Our God went up on a mountain, and with his authority, he says, this is what the kingdom of God is like, and this is its essence. Its essence is humility and dependence upon God, just like the garden. May God keep us from our arrogance to know better, to live differently, but that we would have poverty in spirit, mourn over our sin. Cause us to be meek and see ourselves as the primary problem when we walk into. There's a reason that you can I we can have a log in our eyes as we move into every situation. That we would hunger for righteousness that would come forth. So the very entrance into the kingdom, how we get there by His grace, where He does these things in us, is the very way we live in His kingdom as His followers. And so that brings us to the last, right? The embodiment. There is one who embodied all these things perfectly. Right? And it is Christ. The very one giving the sermon. The very one sitting down with them. He embodied them all. He didn't come, ideally, ironically, he didn't come as a wealthy person. He came as a poor person, physically. But he became poor in spirit. He became bankrupt on the cross and took our sin, which we looked at at Easter. He actually became sin. At one moment in his life, he was the most sinful person on earth because he was taking the weight of the sin. It was credited to him. He was guilty of that. He became poor in spirit. How? So you and I might become rich in spirit. He embedded. He, embedded, he existed in that for us. He mourned. Did he not mourn? Did he mourn? He mourned over my sin and your sin, and he wept. He wept all the way to the end, and he even wept with those who were experiencing death. 
and what the sin and the consequences. And he wept, and he wept to the end and said, My Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In his own, he was weeping over our sin. It, it breaks his heart that you and I have been entangled in this fall. So much that he came to seek and save us and to bring us out of it. And was he not meek? He, could, he was God, and yet he chose to be lowly and gentle like a sheep. He was the lion, but he was the sheep as well. His posture was not haughty. He was kind. He embodied it. And did he hunger for righteousness? He is righteousness. He loves righteousness. And it was his righteousness that was given to us. He became unrighteous so that in him we might have the righteousness that he has. Jesus is not a teacher who says, do as I say, not as I do. He embodied it all and did it for us. So, there is one who has embodied this. And we look to him for our motivation. We, in the hope that one day this will be a, we live in this profound in-between we aspire to these things, and yet we learn to live in this posture, and then we always are clinging to the one who did it on our behalf. I mean, it's a weird kind of dance to the Sermon on the Mount. He brought me here. He's doing it in me. I should love what he has. There's some virtue to aspire and participate at the same time. I can't do it, and there's one who's done it on my behalf, and that makes me want to do it more. I mean, I can't. That's a whole class. But that is the essence of Christianity. So, may I finish with this with you? You see the word blessed? It is a really hard word to interpret. Most say that they, we haven't done a good job interpreting it, meaning there's basically no way to explain what it means to be blessed. Most people, when they read that, and there is a word used throughout the Bible where blessing is just God does something good to you, and that's the idea of blessing. But this word is way, way, way richer than that. And as a matter of fact, let me tell you, that, uh, that the Greeks, and told you about the Greeks and the Jews? Well, this word particularly to be blessed means not only for God to do something to you, but it means to actually have happiness or flourishing or a full, holistic shalom, if you will, in your being. It's an unbelievable. And to the Greeks, the Greeks thought this word, it was a form, makarios is the word. It was form, they used that word, and they thought of only the kings were blessed. Meaning this is kingly language, that they had all that the world could offer, the kings had it. So Jesus is using that to the Greeks, and to the Jews, they knew of blessed is he who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but the dark. This word blessed over and over. That the first words of the Pentateuch, what were the first words that God said? He blessed his people. In Genesis 1-8, his first action towards us. In Revelation, we will finish this, God's blessed people. And he says, Lord, bless you and keep you. They had this idea, and they knew there was a future blessing coming. It had all this. It was, it was a word that was drawing everyone in to say, you long for a flourishing, not only to be blessed, but to somehow flourish in that, and it just bring you the oomph and the thing and the fullness of everything you long for. That's what this is. I can't explain it to you. I tried. Blessed are those people. And it's not an easy street, by the way. This blessing will actually can come through persecution, affliction, which will be next week. But there's something from God 
for those in his kingdom that is that rich. And so here's my call to you. You see there in the verse two, or verse one. It tells us that the disciples came out from the crowd. You see that? So there was a crowd around, but then it says the disciples pulled away and, they sat, and he sat with them. Now some have argued whether or not this is only the Sermon on the Mount, it's only for the disciples. We don't think that. I don't think that. It's for everybody to hear. But some moved closer to him. And what I think it is, is this, is that they longed for better understanding and to be blessed. And my call to you is, first of all, have you ever been brought into the kingdom of God? Is it just been a list of do's and don'ts? Have you actually, for the first time, ever moved out from the crowd and experienced the true blessing and the grace of God to become poor spirit and mourn and meek? and thirst for righteousness. And then secondly, I call us as Grace Church, may we all move out again. Let your heart move out away from the crowd, if you will, and move to the one who has sat down with all authority to tell you I want you to flourish. May we sit down at his feet for these next weeks. And may we sit down at his feet every day Father, as we sing in response, would you help us to um, believe the, uh, would you help us to believe, God, that you actually do long for us to flourish? And God, I pray that you would begin to, even today to encourage us that we would celebrate that we didn't get into the kingdom and become a part of your kingdom and uh, on our own, that we really were poor in spirit, and how freeing that is and how glorious that is to pray of who you are. And would you let us remember, all of us today, may you in this day, of, if we move towards our lives, may we remember that we became a part of the kingdom, not on our own doing, but because we were poor and God brought us. And therefore, it's ours to keep because you started it, you'll keep it, and we are yours. And also, God, would you prepare our hearts to be challenged by the strong calls of the Sermon on the Mount. But would you also keep us rooted in these first four verses, these first six verses of your authority and your kindness and yet the wisdom to see and live in the world through these these four Beatitudes. Help us to do that. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.